0: You're listening to
1: the Tom Ficklin Show on 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Hey, hey, good morning, good people. Thank you for joining us. I recognize that you could be anywhere in the world, but you chose to spend some time with us. And uh, I want to thank Tom Ficklin for this opportunity for guest hosting uh, and getting some word out on these uh, community impactful conversations. Before we begin, though, and I invite my and recognize uh, my esteemed colleague and guest. Just want to give out a few words for the week since we're starting out. I hope this new week breathes new life into you. I hope the weight on your shoulders feels like less of a burden and more of a blessing. I hope you spend less time looking in your rear view and more time watching the road ahead. I hope you find joy. And remember, slow progress is better than no progress. Stay positive and don't give up. Our morning mantra for October 30th, the universe doesn't want you to try harder. It wants you to breathe. Let go. Be open to things being easier and more magical than you can ever imagine. Those who flow as the universe flows know they need no other force. Align with the cosmos and let the magic happen. And with that, we've got the magic of Marisol Garcia. Thank you for joining us, my esteemed colleague. And uh, we just gonna have a discussion about some of the things that uh, Marisol would like to discuss. Um, I gave her a bevy of topics. but we can start wherever you would like, you know, do you have plans for the week. Or we can go right into the cycle of mass incarceration and importance of prison education. Where would you like to start?
2: Well, <laughs> let's start with the ma- mass incarceration and prison <laughs> education. As okay. that's be the platform that I am actually following in the... Tomorrow at a conference with Unified District 1, I'm actually on a panel on the importance of prison education from the GED perspective, even though I didn't obtain my education, my GD uh, in the prison, I obtained, you know, my college degrees through the prison that I started. Um, I'm speaking on the success and, you know, the potential of what that looks like. But I'm also speaking, not speaking, I'm attending the prison higher education conference in Atlanta in a few weeks, actually less than two weeks. Um, so I think mass incarceration and prison education is very forefront on my mind right now and what that looks like. So I know recently I happened to be listening to several colleagues talk about you know, the Second Chance Pal and what mm-hmm. that now looks like for everyone. And I think what's really not given enough credence or even attention or spotlight is the fresh start possibilities with the Department of Education and what that looks like for people when they're in prison. Um, I've been very fortunate to be in communication with Terrell, who is the director of the FCGIN network, which is a organization that helps those who have achieved higher education to plug into a professional network that, you know, we gotten the education. We should be able to have the means to get paid for the same level of education that our brethren who have not been impacted by mass incarceration. And, you know, we've had open dialogue where there has been difficulty. You know, we know that when you've been incarcerated and you went to school, whether it's a vocational or college classes, you know, once you go to prison, your avenues of being able to communicate with the outside world has been minimized or completely mm-hmm. destroyed. So a lot of people come into prison and their student loans go into default because they have no ability to communicate or the Department of Education and the federal government tends to just forget about us and they say well you know you didn't contact us things fall through the crack and the department of corrections does not provide the appropriate support or means you know because as we know there is no technological advance in the department of corrections here in Connecticut they've made headway but again it's very minimal it is always safety and security first at the expense of the incarcerated population and that is definitely unfair so we've been making inroads with having open discussion of what that looks like of doing something that is a little more the onus is on the department of corrections and department of education to make more of an effort where you know we already have socioeconomic impact leaving prison let's not make let's not impact it and let's not make it more tenfold with coming out with debt that we could have avoided because of the fact that we're incarcerated i think people don't think about that or they they're like you you're a criminal you're doing time
1: i don't care um i I think a a couple of things i i (laughs) I agree with you on not wanting to exacerbate a person's situation that's coming out and trying to make a fresh start of it because you already have collateral consequences and kind of a scarlet Mm -hmm. letter on you um that goes along with educational debt that goes along Mm -hmm. with say you get your inheritance from a auntie or a grandmother or father whoever and the state going after that inheritance as you try to make way, a new way for yourself in life, but I also, and, and as well as child support and, and being caught mm-hmm. in arrears, um, so those are definitely some impactful conversations. I will say that uh, you're right, uh, the, Department of Edu- the Department of Corrections, um, as far as technology, is very antiquated, and that, that needs to change. I know, as you said, they are making some progress. I, I I would go with the vein that slow progress is better than no progress, but there definitely needs to be some changes um, while keeping all stakeholders involved satisfied to a certain degree. And we you know Department of Corrections first at uh, first um, can't think of the word I'm looking for, but their 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 first most important item on their agenda is always safety and security, um, both for victims, for uh, inmates as well as for staff and DOC. So. Very well, well aware of how that partnership works.
2: Earl, I have to, the only thing I will turn around and say in something you just said and about mm-hmm. no progress versus slow progress, here's where my difficulty lies with that statement. And normally as being a woman and being someone who has been through personally traumatic relationships on a personal note, but also because of mass incarceration, mm-hmm. you know, Sometimes, somehow people seem to be under this misconception that because we've been imprisoned and because we went to prison we served our time and we come home they think that you know we should be grateful and no one is saying that we're not grateful for the opportunity to come home live life and whatnot you know that especially goes for people who did juvenile sentences who are now coming home however You know, the cost of mass incarceration isn't just the numbers that they give you when you first get sentenced. It isn't that. This is a debt that we keep paying long after we've been released from prison. Because that scarlet F is on your chest, whether or not your inmate number has been exonerated, regardless of all that. You deal with the psychological ramifications, you deal with the social, the socioeconomic, all of that. But Here's where my question lies, and no one really can give me a satisfactory answer. When are we going to stop paying? Just because we went to prison and because our actions in the past, we made poor choices, yes, but we did the time for it. When is there going to come a time where that is enough? Because that's almost in the same concept of when they say that Connecticut isn't a of uh, a capital felony state, right? We, we have life sentences, but if, so what they just turned around and did instead of doing capital punishment with a needle, they just did it in a lifetime plan that they're going to kill you day by day. So it's almost the same concept of they make us pay for the rest of our lives day by day, whether it is a socioeconomic impact, psychological community relationships. We are never, it's almost like saying that we are never fully reintegrated full citizens in, in the community. And that's not fair. So if you're saying that, that's gonna be the case. So then that right there should be echoed in the office of victim services, the prosecutor's office and all these things. This should just be a very clear conversation out on the table of saying, guess what? No matter what you do, it's never gonna be enough. You're never gonna pay enough. And not only am I going to make you do time, leave, I'm gonna put you on supervision, but I'm also gonna compromise your family relationships, your community relationships, your psychological relationships, Okay, when is that ever going to be enough? When am I going to stop paying? Are you telling me that once I've been involved in the system, I'm never going to be a person. I'm always going to be that number. And no one is ever going to see me as being able to have the right to have the same rights as everybody else. So if you're telling me that, then you're basically saying you might as well lock us all up, throw away the key. We never leave. And no matter so
1: so so when you when you say that you're telling me that you're not talking about me telling you that you're talking about in general the system. Yeah.
2: Okay. So
1: I I I agree with you 110 that once you serve your sentence and you're released, there shouldn't be a scarlet letter F or whatever, and there shouldn't be additional collateral consequences. I am fully on board with that. Um, in my what I'm saying about slow progress is better than no progress is in the vein of the discussion around the technology um, and all the uh, people, the folks incarcerated, getting uh, getting tablets and being able to use those to connect the resource outside um, or how to understand the rights that they should have while they're inside, like knowing that. If but you're I, but that's also
2: exactly. But that's also what I'm saying. I'm okay. there. Should we shouldn't accept a certain low standard as any. Being the standard it should be there has to be a point for the department of corrections and our judicial system and criminal justice system where there has to be like a threshold standard of saying okay yes we know that technology we understand safety and security but there has to be a point where we have to stop saying as a community that i'm willing to accept whatever scraps and that's exactly what they are this movement on the tablets this movement on basic healthcare this movement on the protect act being rolled back or certain things too many times they're telling us you should be grateful this should be enough we are doing something sometimes that something isn't enough because if you were out here without mass incarceration as stakeholders you and I both know that the demand from the public and the community is a hell of a lot higher than what we even ask for, for basic things. So I think the status quo of us accepting what bare basic, these are whatever steps, whatever scraps we get, I'm sorry, but as a as an advocate, as someone who's in the legal education and going into the legal community, that's not enough for the people that that I come from. That's not enough anymore. Because right now you're basically telling us that we're about 30 years behind not only in technology, but in certain rights. Just because we went to prison, that doesn't mean that we forfeited our humanity. That doesn't mean that we forfeited it, but but it feels that society is saying to us and we are willing to accept because nobody wants to rock the boat. Enough, no, I'm not willing to accept that. That's why I disagree with the any progress is better than no progress. We are beyond the point of making, this should be a standard plate. This about tablets, that's a standard plate. Certain things about education, They know we're in prison. It's not like it's a secret. The state knows when it comes time to get an IRS default lien, they know exactly where you are, whether it's the state or the federal. So how hard is it for them to be able to do the same for education? Why is it in the same thing with the I'm not saying that you paid your time in prison and I'm not saying that that cost can be offset somewhere. I'm not trying to rule that out completely. But for them Mm -hmm. to turn around and say that they should get full cost of incarceration, 50 percent of an inheritance. Come on. That, that's, I, I don't, think,
1: a um, No, no, I, I not agree,
2: seen that I you agree with you.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. Um, I mean, I, I, I agree with you as well in, in the aspect of talking about accepting crumbs, and and I, but I still believe wholeheartedly that in order to, you do need to accept the fact, currently, the state that we live in is a land of steady habits. And in order to turn that ship in a different direction, shift the paradigm, it takes a lot of work. I mean, you're talking about a state that at one point, individuals who are on probation could vote, but individuals who are on parole couldn't vote. And you're talking about that lasting for almost over 20, 30 years until recently when myself, yourself, and individuals like James Jetter and you know the Full Citizenship Coalition and all these different folks came to the table and said this makes absolutely no sense. So in in, in those veins, we are all absolutely on the same page. Um but I I I I still have to vehemently believe that in taking, we we gotta take the progress. And when we open that door a little bit, we gotta continue to chisel at it and open mm-hmm. it wider. Would I like for it to happen at a faster pace? Absolutely. But I'm also
2: I don't really? want to say I'm
1: assigned to the fact that we live in a, a land of steady habits, but from my experience has shown me that it takes time to make that pivot. But as you were talking about education and, and, and all that and, and the importance of it and that stuff, um, I want to talk, um, if you could talk a little bit about you and your journey in graduating from Trinity, your fellowship, your current fellowship, um, being an L1 student and how you kind of got there, if you don't mind.
2: Oh, you know, absolutely. So I started my, so I came home in 2019 and when I went into prison, you know, I had a couple of college credits and I, because again, defaulted student loans, I wasn't able to get into the Pell programs at uh, York correctional. So I ended up lucking out and being able to go into Trinity who had a pro a prison education seminar program with, uh, in partnership with Quinnipiac. So I was able to take a couple of classes there. And then when the opportunity arose, I applied to uh, Wesleyan's partnership with Middlesex through the Center for Prison Education. So when I came home in
1: 2020,
2: (laughs) I ended up graduating. I only had five more classes before I got my associates. However, I didn't want to just graduate with just a general associate. So I stayed a little longer and i got my uh, i did a dual associates in political science and general studies then i started applying to schools you know this is again another shout out to cpe you know dan who was my former mentor there who's now in UMaine mass as their director I I, 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 i lucked out in the sense that he was my strongest support he came with me when i registered at middlesex he walked me in with the financially people, and that was a hassle within its own right, but he kind of walked me through and supported me through that process, and Dan also was also the very one who, he reviewed my essays, edited my essays when I was doing my undergrad search and applications, and at that same time, you know, I made the decision to go to Trinity because I wanted to stay somewhere where I was familiar, and Trinity provided me the, the quality of education I was accustomed to, So I ended up going to Trinity. I stayed there for my, I got my undergrad in 18 months because I fast-tracked myself in many different respects. While I was at Trinity, I did, you know, Dan again made the recommendation that I applied to the Yale Law Access Program, which was a pilot program in 2020, 2021, through the Yale Law School that enabled people who had been formerly incarcerated or people from marginalized communities to be able to kind of see what law school would look like, you know, prepped you with, you know, LSAT prep, doing your personal statements and everything that it would be in order to get you ready to move into applying to law school and how to cope with law school.
1: Big up to access Yale, yeah. law school program. I'm a fellow, nice to be talking to a fellow fellow. <laughs> I did so to.
2: with that, I was doing that as well. At the same time, I was pursuing my undergrad and I worked, I worked. jobs at the same time um while i was doing that i finished my uh, my undergrad in 2022 immediately went into my second year of the fellow at yale for the law program and then i did my master's i was doing that as well and started the whole process of applying to law school taking the lsats which was a very strenuous and stressful experience because i was still on supervision And I had this unfortunate experience where the prosecutor's office was, were threatening to incarcerate me yet again because of a restitution order that I had only two years to pay from release, from the finishing and termination of my parole. And Mm. it was one of those things where I had did everything right and I was trying to even get them to rectify it. But my lawyer retired, said nothing to me from the public defender's office and let me the bag. So yeah, that was a whole ordeal. But again, the people that, um, through the Yale Law School, uh, the program, CPE and everybody else, they kind of supported me out, kind of walked me through that. Um, at the same time I had applied and was accepted to the Yale Prison Education Initiative Fellowship, which is as a college to career fellow, which is anybody who has completed any type of education in any prison program as an associate or with your bachelor's, you're able to go part-time, full-time, but they have one of each that enables you to go to Yale, do policy or to explore everything that Yale has to offer through their law school, uh, graduate school, undergrad. You can sit in on classes, audit classes, you can do policy work, research work. You know, we have a fellow right now who is working, he's a Bard alum. He is working on artwork and he's been formerly incarcerated in New York, you know, 27 years. And he's doing amazing things on how art and mass incarceration can join. So there's so many opportunities that you're able to do. And I've been very lucky in that same respect that I've done uh, policy work on mental health, the impact of the stigma of mass incarceration. I worked on the Connecticut Prisoners Handbook guidebook that we we all, not the one that we get in DOC, but the one Mm. that was in circulation since like, I think 2020, 2020, 2005, something like that. It's been through a couple of different stages. So we're working on that. Um, I've been again, uh, able to sit in last year. I was at the Lyman center, um, which is national people coming in, talk about fines and fees and how that impacts our community. I've made it a point and I utilize the fellowship in order to be able to jump into any type of policy work that deals with our community. Um, and I've been very lucky in that respect. I also, in this upcoming spring, am able to teach at Yale with the, with the director of the program for undergrads. So again, you know, like these are opportunities that are out there, you know, are they easy to get? No, are they competitive? Absolutely, but the support- They exist. Exactly. And I think it's a matter of, I'm tired of people thinking that when people go to prison that there is no life outside of that, no life after that. And that is so not true. Also where they say that, you know, we mooch off the system and that's all we are. No, again. If you look in the prison, you have some of the brightest minds in prison education. You do. Like, one, in ways one that-, that of the
1: you, things, hold on. One of the things I would say too is that, as a community, an external community, uh, like 80, 85% of those guys and gals are gonna be coming home It mm-hmm. would behoove us to make sure that they have opportunities and resources so that they can contribute back to the community. And, and in some cases, or in most cases, Try to make the community whole because while you guys, while people are folks that are, are are in prison, there are folks that are connected to them that are safe, serving at the same time, but in the community, and their presence is definitely missed. So
2: that's also one of the things I think that like people forget. You know, people think that when people go to prison that they, you know they they disappear. And I understand a lot of people deal with that type of abandonment from family friends. You know, because it's very easy when you're not in someone's face day-to-day and how hard it is with maintaining communication, especially when we know how DOC has been, especially at the height of COVID and even after the fact, prior to COVID, there it's not easy. Facilities are on lockdown. There are so many different things going on, but they are coming home. And also a big reminder that people need to remember, the kids, the juveniles that were incarcerated during the eighties, nineties and two thousands who were given 30, 40, 50 year sentences you know, due to criminal justice reform that we've done, as well as second chance that Connecticut has had, they're coming home. And I think we have done a very piss poor job in providing the support that they need, not only with reentry services, you know, they're there, but again, as it is with funding, we have to fight for every little bit of money that we get. You know, we've, you know, you and I've had this conversation at the Haven Roundtable, you know, you have a lot of people who are not, Formally incarcerated who have not been just as impacted talking about these very things, but understand that you need to reach out to the community to get involvement in order to be able to understand truly what the needs are. And I think we've fallen short on not just employment, but the mental health and emotional support that they need mm. prior to release. Because how many people I know who have come home and are having difficulty acclimating because the world that they left when they came when they went to prison being in prison that is no nothing with um growth coming home to a world that is completely different, different. than what they left technology yeah. has advanced family has come and gone past friends have come and gone you know you're asking them to normalize and they don't even know what it is to be normal because their normal is not there anymore they don't have that support. Uh-
1: I'll say this, too, um, and what you when you when you bring up the point, And I got two more minutes. And there's one more question I want to get uh, your input on um, is that you're talking about people that were in prison as juveniles and they're coming out to a whole different world. And in some cases, while their body might have grown, their mental mind state might still be that 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 year old person. And they're coming back in the world with a full grown body, but they're still kind of where they were at when they were in prison mm-hmm. and the world has moved on. That's how, that's a tough transition.
2: That's called arrested development. And unfortunately there's not, you know, that's actually one of the things I'm doing research on because there's a difference between arrested development in the community and arrested development in prison because people are coming with trauma when they were in the, in the community, the right. trauma of being arrested, then the constant state of trauma being in the carceral system There is, you know, you're asking kids who were 16, 14 when they went in, they're in an environment where they're not going to grow much emotionally and psychologically if they advance, let's say out of 30 years, 25 years, let's say five years. So they went in as 16, 15 year olds. They're now coming home as 21, maybe 22, 23, but the bodies are 40, 45, and they're coming home to adult responsibilities. Their parents are sick their support is gone, they have to pay rent, do these things, have a job. These are people who were in prison and they were earning 75 cents a day, maybe a dollar max. How are you asking them to be adults when they barely know how to be kids in a world that they left behind that they don't know? So I'm, you're I'm gonna, absolutely that
1: I'm Beth. gonna dig a little bit more into that with, with our upcoming guests and the, mm-hmm. the last question I'll ask you and feel free to stay on um, if you can. Um, is, your are you currently on a stint as a on the editorial board of the is it the Connecticut Mirror?
2: Yes, so Did you I just talk am. A little bit about that, absolutely. And just an FYI, just for anybody, they are currently running applications for the next editorial uh, fellows coming in for this upcoming twenty twenty four year. So I would advise anybody who wants to be impactful in the community, have their voice heard, and they bring a unique perspective, apply. Um, so I my tenure ends in December. and so I've kind of served as someone who's been formally incarcerated, a policy background. And because I'm so heavy in, if you can't tell, I am a voice for our community because I'm not willing. No. To <laughs> I'm not willing to accept the breadcrumbs they give us. I feel that if until somebody is able to step up or more of us are willing to be heard at the table or can be heard, Absolutely, I'm gonna keep drumming the drum in whatever arena I'm in, absolutely. And actually to that being said, there's a possibility that I may be going on their governance board, if that goes in effect maybe in January, February. So I will not be in the same editorial fellow position. I'd be more in the upper um, operation of the governance board for the Connecticut Mirror, which I'm kind of grateful a little bit because it will take one less stressor off my plate. (laughs)
1: No doubt. Um, At this point, I want to thank you. Thank you for spending your time and your energy and sharing all that information with us. Um, I look forward to having more conversations with you because I think we're due for a a live restorative justice conversation. We we definitely got to touch on that. Um, Right now, I would like to bring up my esteemed colleague, uh, Christine McFarland, Community Life Solutions, um, as well as Bridgeport's Family First uh, with the Mayor's Initiative for Reentry Affairs. Christine, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll get into some questions and and the great work that you're doing in the community as well.
0: Hi, good morning, everyone. Yes, my name is Christine McFarland and um, I am with Community Life Solutions, um, which is an evidence-based model that's working with children um, with extreme trauma. And Bridgeport Family First fits right in because we are focusing on children with um, parents or family members um, who are incarcerated, and how that impacts the family, and how that impacts the child overall. So I would say I'm a restorative service specialist, and mm-hmm. my job is to pretty much just identify all of the areas and gamuts of a family that may cause um, some level of trauma to the child, and thinking of how we could. Um, prevent the child from having more trauma that happens over the years by having a missing parent, by parents not um, having the support that they need, which is housing and um, substance abuse um, treatment and all of the things that a family needs in order to be one um, strong unit. So our services range from Working in the school systems here in Bridgeport, where we are working with the middle schools and the high schools here in Bridgeport, with a lot of focus on the middle schools right now, and actually providing services within the schools. Um, and our program is called Reset Program. Our Reset Program is an evidence-based model that was created by myself and Sacred Heart, and together we are collecting data, and we're doing everything that we can do to see how uh, a, co- a collaborative Um, set of work could actually improve the overall mental health of the child and the family as a whole. We want to see more family togetherness. We don't want to see any separation of the family any further due to incarceration. We want this to be more of a positive, restorative model versus, you know, dad is returned from prison. He comes out with no job, not able to contribute to the family. How can we get him on his feet right away? Some of the things we want to do is make sure we make referrals to um, for dad um, to go to work programs and figure out how to get a cell phone right away and figure out how to connect with his child and his family in a way um that that's necessary in order for him to become the the breadwinner the breadwinner of the family again those things that you'll often take years or sometimes increase with the the rate of recidivism because once you figure out you can't do anything you just figure three hots and a cot is the best thing to do but we want him to understand that we have those services here in bridgeport that could actually help him restore faster quicker um, not that we can do it alone. He has to, he has to want it. And same thing for our women, right? So we have Lucy Bainey here in the city of Bridgewater, which is the, um, which is the women's halfway house. We have a unit of that facility that house women that are pregnant right now. The women actually come to the facility pregnant. We actually help them um, engage in services while they're pregnant, while they're pregnant, while we continue to keep them healthy so that we can have healthier babies um, born under those circumstances. And we've been having some success lately, um, and, and that's been a great model. And once mom has the baby, by the time she has the child, she's all set to try to like get her her life on track if she EOSs and she gets to leave. We want to make sure she has housing. to make um, her um, Mm -hmm. re-entry an easier one for her and her child. The idea is for DCF not to come in and take the child, but to figure out how the mom can stay with their their child and reunite with their kids that they may have left before going to prison. So we do um, reunification visits. There's been- um, I was just
1: just about to ask you about that. Um, Reunification is is a big portion of what you do in your partnership. Um, with the city of Bridgeport and the Mayor's Initiative for Reentry Affairs, myself and uh, our Bridgeport's Family First program. Um, When you're talking about reunification, because I don't want people to to misconstrue the ideal of what that looks like. What it can mean is if mom was in prison, um, coming back and reuniting and inserting themselves back into the family. But that's not always the case. And the same thing with fathers. It may be that the father is reinserted back and reunified with the family um, the, the 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 whole unit, or it just may mean understanding how to work with the family unit um, and co-parent, and not necessarily be in the household, because there are different models to that and what that looks like. But we're looking overall to do the best that we can to do a comprehensive, provide comprehensive um, unification resources, and helping the family overall. So if that means while the mom or, or dad is in prison. We're also looking at the family. Do they need help with different things as far as access to technology, digital literacy, financial literacy, and different things of that nature, correct?
0: Yes. Legal documentation. Sometimes they need IDs. Sometimes they don't know where their social security card is. Sometimes, um, you know, they're missing documentation that could be uh, a hindrance to getting them to the next step. So those are all of the things that we're doing to help Um, with the reunification process. And how the reunification process has looked so far is um, I would take mom to um, visit her child. We'll go to a public place and mom and the child um, spends time together, getting to know one another. Sometimes mom can have some anxiety around that. So I'm there as a coach to make sure that that, that that particular visit has an impact on the child. And then mom can actually, and the child can actually get to know one another. Because a lot of the times in prison, the family, they don't wanna bring the child um, to see mom in, you know, in prison. So we have that service is that, that service that's available. If mom happens to be, um, in prison now, when we do the inside out piece of the program, we can bring a child to see their mom in jail. um, if, you know, if that's the case, because we do everything that it takes to start rebuilding that family right away. And on any level that the system allows us to do it right so that's one of the things that um that we are doing really well here in bridgeport with and that reunification um piece is very important to the whole process of reintegration restorative services and reentry.
1: that's a that's in partnership with parole uh probation uh fathers in education and education and, and other uh resources in the community correct
0: yes correct strive for work services um um, all of the um we have even relationship with the with the why we have relationship with boys and girls um here where we have those um services where kids can go and and just be kids and they don't have to worry about what's going on in the home so the whole process of the reset program community life solution and partnering partnering with with bff is to have a collaborative model a model that we bring all of the professionals together giving a family unit a lot of opportunities to just make all of the connections that they need to make in order to make it work after um incarceration
1: oh that's awesome um without giving any specifics do you have like any can you provide an example of say a child or, or a family that you worked with you know In the last three to six months or so, or some kind of services that you provided, whether that was summer programming or backpack giveaway and stuff focused on the child, but stuff uh, that also benefited or focused on the parents, either outside um, as a caretaker or inside, say, the Lucy Bainey house or or physically in prison in one of the uh, uh, correctional facilities in the state
0: yes so one of the things that we did over the summer um is like many of the organizations was you know do a backpack giveaway where we provided kids um and, and families with all of the supplies that they need to get started for the school system I mean for the school year and make sure that they had anything they need and we could take some of the financial burden off the families to get those things we um provided school uniforms to some of the kids that that were um, in enrolled at the charter schools. Um, those uniforms are very expensive. So we make sure that we um, help the family and lessen the burden in that way. We have, um, again, been on uh, reunification visits where we just take mom and we take oh, you got me. Like with a safe space, a space, a safe space to to connect with one another, um, and not have to worry about you know expenses and and so on and so forth. Um, we took um, a few kids to an event where they were able to like dress up in ball gowns and just feel beautiful for the day and just be recognized as those resilient individuals within a community um, because of things that's happening in the household. And that kind of took their minds off of all of the, you know, chaos that might be happening at home. Um, We also, um, help me out, Earl. (laughs) Oh,
1: okay. Uh, I believe there was an individual whose mom was incarcerated and we help with um subsidizing their summer programming. Yes. And um yes. mom is home we're gonna help with some of her certifications as well.
0: Yes. We have another family whose um whose dad, um, whose child's dad is incarcerated right now um, for sexually abusing her, but mom has been trying to pursue her. Um, RN, and it's been difficult for her to get to the licensing piece, so we are helping her pay for that to happen. Um, We have... During the Christmas holidays, we make sure that we um, provide the families with gifts so that they don't have to have that financial burden on them, but the family, but the um, individuals can actually go to their families and say, hey, here's a Christmas gift from me to you. Um, Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things that cause, um, you know, our substance abuse um, clients to kind of relapse because that level of stress is often, um, yeah, stress in the holidays. It's It's not a good time for a lot of our individuals We try to make sure that we provide them with meals and we do family style dinners with them. Um, And, you know, so we've done a lot of work here and, um, you know, in in the way that's necessary in order for us to just normalize things for for these individuals.
1: So a couple of things I want to get back to. You said you had taken uh, some of the participants to a program. You want to enlighten the audience as to what that program was dealing with? Oh,
0: with the award? Yeah. With the oh, That's OK. The yeah. So I have gotten a community advocates um, of the year award, um, which that award pretty much um, highlights the fact that I've done so much work in the community from um, working with kids with, with trauma, working with family with trauma, connecting families and children with um, all of the services that they need, all the restor- restorative services that they need to get from one space to another. Um, and I was actually provided with that award. So, um, so I invited, you know, a lot of my kids and families to come. And during that time, I just gave, you know, I did a speech where I highlighted everybody's resilience and I just gave everybody, you know, um, their accolades right there, because without them, you know, I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do. And it was really a nice event. And I think it was uh, uh, it was very, very warming. And, you know, the family really loved seeing their kids, like I said, dressed up in beautiful gowns and and we just had a great time.
1: That's amazing. That's awesome. And then for the last couple of minutes, um, two things, if you could enlighten the folks in the audience. Um
0: one, I would ask
1: if you could just let the folks know, you know, you're not out here just doing this out of the kindness of your heart, which you are, but you are also uh, accredited. You have credentials to be doing what you're doing. You're a professional. So if you could just share some of that with us as well, um, your, what your credentials are. And if um, and if you could just uh, expand a little bit about Reset. I'm not sure if that covers your Saturday Academy, but I'd like to definitely hear more about what that entails with your Saturday Academy as well.
0: OK, so Saturday Academy is a group mentoring that we bring those same kids that we identified in the school systems throughout the throughout the school week. And we bring them together in a trauma informed environment and we provide them with galactic um, supports. You know, if they're not doing well in particular classes, we we provide tutoring to them. Um, we provide um, STEM Um, activities that kind of helps them learn how to um, manage their irregularity um, and trauma and any anxiety, and we bring them into this environment on Saturdays,
2: giving the family
0: a break. Yeah, emotion regulation, right? And and also giving the family a respite, giving the family a break, right, from, from each other, but then providing the family with the accountability piece that says, hey, we um, provided this level of support to the child academically, emotionally, socially, and we need you to make sure that on Sunday night, you and you remember to to talk about these things with him or her. So when she goes to school on Monday, she's in a better place. Right. So reset is that that's the reset model is about being able to reset these kids and get them in a place where they can feel like, OK, I didn't do so well last week. I can do better this week. Right. So we provide we continue to provide those type of services to our kids and give them the opportunities to see that they can actually make change for themselves through just being engaged and involved. I think we'll get a, 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 great, a better set of kids as we move forward. Right. Because these kids in middle school, the last time they were in school together, they were like in second and third grade and then suddenly they're fifth graders now right so that's been a really a tough time for these kids so we want to recognize that and, and and make sure that we hone in on how to improve things for those kids so that's the model for reset you could take a look at the model you could take a look at the model more by going to resetcls.org and you'll see more about the model and as far as uh, education oh sorry guys no no yeah. Oh, and as far as education, I received my master's degree from Yeshiva University out of New York City. And um by um and since then I, I spent a whole lot of time working with adults with developmental disabilities. And um, adults with autism and children with autism. So besides that work, I am also run a program for juvenile probation, which those kids, if we wrap those services around those particular kids as well, we can reduce recidivism and we can reduce the amount of youth that's going into the adult population as far as prison. So I do run a gamut of program, but when you take a look at it, it's a collaborative model. The model all you know, makes sense all around the board.
1: And you have your, and correct me, uh, licensed clinical social worker or master <laughs> social I I don't want to mix it up. I want to get it correct.
0: Licensed clinical social worker.
2: Awesome.
1: Yes. Yeah. Right.
0: Girl, can I <laughs> Thank say something? Absolutely. So-
1: Absolutely. So- Chime in.
2: So first, let me commend you on the work that you do. Uh, one, because you are hitting not only families, but... Juveniles, which is important, but Earl, she hit on something very important, and I love the concept of the reset model only because I think that I think if someone had the time and I, I hope maybe you might look into this because I think she hit on the very same thing we were just talking about for the juvenile lifers who are now coming home in that reset, because again, they are, they were juveniles. They're now adults, but the problems that they run into is they are so conditioned with the carceral pro, you know, process and experience that they feel guilty, they feel bad. They don't know how to talk about it. They don't know. They they have the same expectations that I think society has, that they should be adults and they should be doing adult things. But they are not given that space, that safe space, like what she was just talking about, reset the button you know, you had a bad week last week, you had a bad whatever. And I'm not saying, you know, we're talking about adults here, but let's be fair. Let's look at the lens. Exactly. So So let's look at the lens. And I I hope, you know, I don't know, ma'am, if you'd be open to a collaborative, maybe doing some, maybe for us to talk, or maybe if we can kind of put together a group that might actually look at some type of support program or program like this for adults that can actually be maybe implemented in not only Connecticut, but other places, because I think you are onto a great idea. Thank you. I look forward to connecting you
1: guys. Trust me, I'll connect you guys.
2: I think the problem is, is like there really isn't enough. There's research that we know about neuroscience, but I think they are so busy focusing on the young people that they're forgetting about this very set, you know, a certain amount of number of people who've been incarcerated that they don't know where to turn. You know, they only can turn back to the community they came from. And we already know that's a parole violation violation. So they feel like they have no support system. What do they do? Like, I think that is such a vital space that you work in. And I commend you for the fact that you, you have a, such a successful model with the kids. I think if we tweak it right, this can be implemented for the adults in a different fashion that can be possibly mimicked and copied nationally, because it, it's a national problem. So again, yeah. my kudos come off to you. Appreciate the work Thank you
0: do. Thank you. I appreciate that, and yes, I'm looking forward to Earl connecting us and coming up and expanding the model, right? Because this is about us starting in a in a smaller in a smaller realm and seeing how far out we could expand to see um, again to make sure that we can meet all all the pop all of the population that it may have yep. impact. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm looking forward to that, Miss Garcia.
1: Awesome. All right. I wanna thank both of my guests for spending time and sharing with us. I do have a couple of notes I wanna get out there to folks. Um, There is a community conversation uh, Halloween um, taking place tomorrow from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. And that'll take place at Roberto Clemente Middle School cafeteria, uh, 360 Columbus Ave in New Haven. I'll get that information out there. That's from Next Level Empowerment Group and is powered by social equity. Um, There is a dinner conversation on November uh, 13th um, with um, next level empowerment and as well as the um, religious community uh, and and, in that conversation, we'll be talking about the millions of dollars in grant funds available based on Connecticut's Social Equity Council um, and trying to get uh reinvestment back in the communities to those that were disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs Um, and as the cornerstone of the work of the sec um, there is also a dream big community conversation taking place saturday uh, this coming saturday november 4th and we'll also get that information out there. there is a breakfast and at all of these events um, i believe there's food served and then there's also door prizes where individuals could possibly win a 65-inch TV. And that is also hosted by uh next level empowerment. Um, just just these communications are gonna be take or, or conversations are gonna be taking place about the importance of communities coming out and having their voices heard around how they would like to see uh, these dollars reinvested. Um, of course. Um, with next level's agenda, and I'm I'm not uh, opposed to their agenda at all. Making sure that some of the portion of these dollars are spent in reentry, um, and coming and want folks to come out and have a say and see, you know, what grants are available for businesses in the community and those that were uh, disproportionately impacted, those that reside in disproportionately uh, impacted areas. Um, I I would also say that, and um, Ms. Garcia alluded to this. Um, and I'm a firm believer of this, if you're not at the table, you're going to be on the menu. So um, I I want our folks to be at the table. And this one last thing that I want folks to be aware of is another upcoming program um, regarding uh, information dangers around uh, fentanyl. So just give me one second and I'll pull that right up.
2: Uh, There we go. Earl, while you're pulling that up, I just want to make sure that the public is aware, especially those who are just as impacted and others that we are currently holding interviews of the correctional advisory committee for the ombudsman mm-hmm. position for the Department of Corrections. Oh, and wow. So I'm on I'm, I'm the co chair as we're doing that right now, and it will be in the next couple of weeks that we will be putting out the community notice. So I'm hoping that people are mindful of this and that they show up, whether it's on Zoom or they put, you know, they ask questions for the interviewees who are going to be on a shortlist for the governor to appoint, in order to make sure that people are aware of what's happening in the Department of Corrections and how we're trying to help the community, the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated community at large.
1: Please get that information over to me so I can get that out um, on all platforms um, as well. Um, in regards to the Fentanyl Forum, um, taking place 127 Wall Street at Yale Law School, uh, room 120 from uh, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. on November 8th, and that's uh, sponsored by Hangtime and Next Level Empowerment. Um, it's important that, you know, folks hear the term Fentanyl but have no idea what it is, what it looks like, how it's adjusted. Um, This will be a presentation and panel discussion designed to provide answers to those issues and more Um On the panel uh, will be Dr. Tech, a specialist in addiction, Um, New Haven uh, Fire Department paramedic, to speak on current trends and dangers of fentanyl, and Zalozzi. I shortly that and not correctly, but that is, uh, I guess, the proper term. Or an additional drug that may be impacting our community. And also, the DEA and Hey Beanie will show a short film and hear from Demand Zero founder Lisa Dean about her son's accidental overdose on fentanyl. And with that being said, folks, that's pretty much the time we have. We're going to have to exit. I will uh, follow up with my guests and get information out to you about the reset program, uh, about that uh, community advisory board with DLC and I want to thank everybody for joining us and most of all I want to thank uh, Tom Ficklin for this opportunity to share this platform and get this message on Community Impactful Conversations out as well as the great Henry drives for the production of the show and everybody that's in an earshot and if you didn't get a chance to catch us um, this will be on YouTube and uh, we posted in other places so thank you again for the opportunity God bless everyone
0: Yeah. Lights, camera action, I'm ready to go
2: I'm never gonna give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up